From historical locations found on a map to the lesser known areas found maybe even in your own hometown, history leaves shadows that people in the present can still see. Let's find out their stories together on this episode of Historically Haunted. Hello everyone and welcome to Historically Haunted. My name is Ariel and today I'm going to be talking about what some consider the most haunted city in the United States. A place that has a ghost story in every building and a legend on every block. I am talking about Savannah, Georgia. This town has a rich history dating all the way back to the colonial period. This will be the third time I have talked about a historical haunted location in the state of Georgia. I covered the Pirate's House located in Savannah, Georgia in episode 5 and then I discussed the strange history of the Barnsley Resort found in Andersville, Georgia in episode 6. Both of those episodes were from when I was going under my old name, History and Mystery, which obviously I am not anymore, so the formula is a little old, but I still think they are interesting. Speaking of which, I have been doing this show for a full year now, and I am completely blown away that I was able to keep going for this long, considering the crazy year that I've had trying to make this podcast. When I first originally started, I had a schedule, and everything went pretty much to heck after that. Everything got a little heimbucked. I was evacuated from my home multiple times due to fires and then we had weeks-long power outages that caused me to stop recording for some time and then they also happened again just this last fall and then I started a new job and I had to work through all of that starting a new job and then in the middle of the new job I just had started the global pandemic began and then civil unrest started up in my country at the same time and it's enough to make a normal person a little crazy but luckily I'm already somewhat crazy because I like to talk about haunted historical locations all day long. (laughs) Of course, I'm just kidding. I'm not crazy. I just believe in ghosts, but I mean, who doesn't these days? And this show is actually my saving grace to all the madness that is going on out there in the world. While I am working really hard to crank out new episodes, it is still really hard. I have days where The bad news and the deaths really get to me, and I just want to stay on the couch all day and binge watch Supernatural and eat a tub of ice cream. And fighting the ADD and dyslexic moments while I wake up in the same house every day over and over and over gets really repetitive and really hard. But then I remember that I have a great group of listeners who actually care about me in the show, and that helps me get through anything. So if you are one of those listeners of my show and you inspire me to keep going with this and in the end, I do feel better. So thank you to everyone who has been kind enough to reach out to me, send me an email, check on me through all my social media handles. I've been getting a lot and it means so much to me and I feel blessed to be here to also help others during this time. And I just want to say, we will get through this, and this will not last forever. I also got a new review on iTunes. So iTunes reviews are super important for all podcasts. It makes them more findable. Is that a word? (laughs) Well, you know what I mean. It makes it easier for people to find my show when they type in something along the lines of, like, haunted history or something like that. The more reviews your show has, the more likely it is to pop up. This five-star review is from the Professor 555 who said, episodes keep getting better and better. So thank you so much for that review, the Professor. I also wanted to give a shout out to my grandma who listens to the show. I have not seen her in months due to this lockdown situation 
question, but I wanted to say thank you, Grandma, for all your support, and I love you. Last but not least, I just want to make sure that you guys add me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Links to all those down below, along with my website, historicallyhaunted.net. Check it out. I also have a link all about dyslexia and how to get to know more and helpful information about that. And a link to my Patreon page is also down below. So I did a cool bonus episode about time slips for my $3 a month or more group. I thought it was a really fun episode, and that's the kind of things I will be covering on my um, Patreon page episodes. Different things than just haunted locations, but still in the paranormal realm. And now, without further ado, let's kick things off with our monstrous moment. Stories of encounters from strange beasts lurking deep in the forests, on snowy mountaintops, and in dark caves have been told throughout the generations, turning to legend. But what if I told you that many of these creatures are still spotted today? I call these monstrous moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's monstrous encounter. dangerous jobs have their superstitions, but the one job that might have the most superstitions is mining. Just to name a few of superstitions that miners believe in are, it's bad luck to whistle in a mine. If a woman enters the mine, especially a redheaded woman, death will occur. Seeing black cats in the mine or dogs meant death would follow. It's considered bad luck to kill a spider. Seeing a white rat means an accident was about to happen. A sudden warm breeze in a mine meant a ghost was passing by you. It's bad luck to walk under a ladder. And if you see moving lights in the mine, it was a sign of death. This is just a few things from an extremely long list of old superstitions that many miners still believe today. They had a few good luck omens as well, though. For instance, if you got coal dust in your eye or if you skin your back on an oak board, it's considered good luck. Out of all the signs of bad luck and the do-not-dos, there are also creatures that miners swear live deep within the mines. One of these creatures is a Tommyknocker, or Knocker for short, and this is today's monstrous moment. A Tommyknocker is known to hide deep within the mines, and it is described as a two to three foot tall, green or gray, gnome-like creature that is dressed in mining gear. These Tommyknockers can be traced to the early Celtic culture and Cornish tin mines. What a Tommyknocker is varies. Some legends state that a Tommyknocker is the spirit of Jews who were forced to work deep within the mines. Another legend states that they are Romans who crucified Jesus Christ and were cursed by God. They were turned into these creatures and then placed into the mines to work forever as punishment. Other legends say that they are the spirits of those who have been killed in mining accidents. But the Cornish people mostly believe that the Tommyknocker is a type of fairy. If you are confused as to how a Tommyknocker could be a fairy, I'm going to let you know now that a fairy is not like Tinkerbell, like many think. A fairy is a part of the fae. And the fae is basically, think of it as an umbrella term for many types of different 
fairies. If you listen to my Sleepy Hollow episode, you might recall that I talked about how the Headless Horseman himself could in fact be a fairy. Many cultures have different mythologies around the fae, but according to the Celtic and pagan folklore, the fae range from helpful to tricksters to harbingers of doom, and they take on many different forms. Some are as terrifying and large as, say, the Headless Horseman, or something as small like a brownie, goblin, or gnome. Think of the Fae as their own type of people, if you will. And I'm going to tell you now that the Fae is not something to mess with. I will be doing an episode on the Fae for Halloween time, like October-ish, so stay tuned for that. And I'm going to talk about the deep mythology of the Fae. It's going to be a fun episode. The Tommyknocker is blamed for all kinds of things that happen within the mines. They have been known to steal food and tools from workers or push them down when they are not paying attention. The most famous thing that they do is knock on the walls of the mine. This would be that more trickster element. This is how they got their name, Knockers or Tommy knockers. Many miners think that the knocking on the mine walls is a sign that the mine is about to collapse or have a cave-in, and the Tommy knockers are trying to warn you to get out fast. Some credited them with saving workers, while others blamed the Tommy knockers for cave-ins due to someone angering them. The legend of the Tommy knocker held fast within the Cornish culture, and when the Cornish people started to immigrate to America in the 1820s and they began working in the coal mines in Pennsylvania, they brought the legends of the Tommy knocker with them. The legends then spread out west to the California gold rush in 1840. 48, and soon California miners were telling stories of the Tommyknockers around the campfires. With all these legends, the one thing you should never do is upset the Tommyknockers. There is an old story, a 200-year-old story actually, of some men who dared mock the Tommyknockers. Seven miners were working at the Schmokeshire Gold Mine when they began to hear the sound of knocking deep within the mine. Three of the men were non-believers and they began to laugh and taunt in the sound, saying things like, come on you Tommyknockers, show us what you can do. The other four men in the group were horrified and fled, running for the exits. While the four men were running away, they claimed to see a group of little green men running in front of them, showing them the way out to safety. When the four men reached the opening to the mine, the mine collapsed behind them, killing the three men who mock the Tommyknockers and the little green men vanished. This is a lesson to never attempt to mock the creatures that could live within the mines. Today the legend still remains pretty strong within the mining community. Miners have been known to leave an offering of tools and food for the Tommyknockers to appease them in hopes of the mines will be spared from cave-ins. The Tommyknocker today is considered to be more of a cryptid type creature. The Tommyknocker is such a famous cryptid within the mining community that even a brewing company in Idaho Springs, Colorado named its brewery after the Tommyknockers. The town the brewery is located in was famous for mining gold during the gold rush days. Now it is said that if you sit at an open abandoned mine shaft, you might just hear the sound of them still working away down deep within the mines. For those of you who are brave enough to go spelunking in an abandoned caves or mines, keep an ear out for the sound of knocking. It just might be the Tommyknockers warning you that you have gone too deep. Did you know that rating and reviewing your favorite podcast shows on iTunes is one of the best ways to help others find the show? Also, sharing the podcast with your friends and family will help spread the word that Historically Haunted is out there and waiting to be listened to. Please go to my website, historicallyhaunted.net, for more ways to support the show, like links to my Patreon page and more.
of Georgia is considered one of the most unique in the country, and you can thank all that beauty to one man, James Oglethorpe. In 1732, Oglethorpe and 114 colonists arrived in South Carolina. After a brief stay, they set out to form a new colony. By February 1, 1733, they settled in what is today Savannah, Georgia. The colony was led by James Oglethorpe. James Edward Oglethorpe was born in London, England on December 22, 1696 to Sir Theopolis Oglethorpe and Eleanor Lady Oglethorpe. And my immaturity is going to show, but what a name. Theopolis Oglethorpe. Woo, that's quite the mouthful. James was the youngest of 10 children and his family wasn't just anyone. They had active political ties to the British royal family and they had high interest in British politics. His father was elected to the House of Commons, but sadly his father passed away when James was only six years old. In July of 1714, when James was only 17 years old, he began his college career by attending Corpus Christi at Oxford University. After attending the school for two years, a war broke out between the Turkish Empire and Europe. Oglethorpe felt a calling to go help the war effort and left Oxford for a military college located in France. He then served as an aide to Prince Eugene of Savory from 1716 to 1718. After the war, he returned to Oxford but never did graduate, but this did not stop him from being successful. James could read and speak Latin along with reading cultural literature. He could even quote Greek and Roman poetry. In 1722, he was able to secure a seat in Parliament. While he was in Parliament, he took on prison reform. A good friend of his was imprisoned for debt and died due to catching smallpox while in the prison. This caused him to look into the system and the way prisoners were treated. What he found repulsed him. This also sparked a new idea for a city that would be self-sufficient and with a more forgiving system. Parliament let Oglethorpe go through with his plans to bring a new colony to the new world. On February 1st, 1733, Oglethorpe arrived on the bluffs along the Savannah River. The colony was named Georgia after King George II. He created the 13th and final British colony. Oglethorpe had a vision for his colony that was not like others at the time. He allowed religious freedoms and let people from all walks of life settle within the colony. Oglethorpe wanted the colony to remain slave-free. He also settled Indian disputes over land with land treaties instead of land grabs, and he established a local garden that was modeled after gardens in England that grew plants for medicine and other uses. He served as governor when the colony first started. His intention for the colony was for it to be an agricultural economy that was also self-sufficient. He also had an idea to create what is now known as America. America's first planned city. During this time period, there were really only two main ways that people built cities, a grid pattern or the medieval streets pattern. Oglethorpe decided to create a third. Today, it is known as the Savannah Plan. And I can't explain it any better than this quote from georgiahistory.com. Quote, the plan was important militarily because it would make the city easier to defend from the Spanish to the south and against potentially hostile Indians. Oglethorpe laid out the city around a series of squares and laid out the street in a grid pattern. Each square has a small community of colonies living around it, and it has separate lots dedicated to community buildings, end quote. It's kind of confusing. I tried really hard to explain it myself, and that was the best explanation I could find. If anyone ever wants to, I recommend Googling uh, Savannah, Georgia, a street plan and you'll see in the historical district exactly what it looks like. This plan was a first of its kind and there is no place like it in the world. Renowned for its beauty, it became a popular place to settle. Oglethorpe helped plan the first six squares of the Savannah plan and in the end, 24 squares were built. Of those 24 squares, 22 still stand today. Oglethorpe wanted the colony to remain slave-free, and he eventually went back to England to try to secure the slave-free status. But sadly, he was denied once the crown found out how rich the soil was for farming. 
After the British decided to allow slavery within the colony, a sad but ironic moment in history happened. It just so happens that Oglethorpe brought with him a plant from England on his first trip to put in the community garden. That plant was cotton, and cotton later became one of the most profitable businesses for wealthy plantation owners in Savannah. But it also led to the slave trade for a solution for providing the plantations with enough people to plant and harvest the cotton. Oglethorpe passed away in June 30th, 1785. The colony began to thrive as cotton and rice plantations sprung up all over the area. The Revolutionary War began on April 15th, 1775, and it lasted eight years and ended on September 3rd, 1783. During the Revolutionary War, the British decided that they could use Savannah to their advantage. By controlling the city, they could control Savannah's important seaport. The British captured the city on December 29th, 1787. In October of 1775, the Americans teamed up with the French to try to reclaim the city. It was a failed attempt, however. The Siege of Savannah was the second deadliest battle in the Revolutionary War. The siege started with an attempt from American and French troops to reclaim the city of Savannah. They had massive issues from the start due to troops getting lost in the swampy area and being hindered by fog. Once the fog cleared, the line was broken and the troops became scattered. They suffered heavy losses and were forced to retreat. The American and French lost about 1,000 men, while the British only lost about 150. So Savannah remained under British control until the end of the Revolutionary War. After the United States earned its independence, Savannah continued to thrive, and with the invention of the cotton gin by Eli Whitney in 1793, Savannah became a rich seaport for the cotton trade. It also became the main location for the slave trade. The slave trade is a sad stain on America's past, and Savannah was the main thoroughfare for newly caught slaves to be brought in and then auctioned off to wealthy plantation owners. I have a really hard time talking about slavery. It's something I will always talk about because it actually happened and I feel like we shouldn't forget that it happened, but I hate the fact that slavery was even a thing. The success of the cotton industry, it created a strong cash flow for the city of Savannah and the South. With this economic boom, it created what was known as the Antebellum Period. This was the time for wealthy plantation owners to build large and lavish mansions, the building of big churches and quaint city streets. During this time, the South focused on romance and sophistication. Women would dress up in large fancy hoop skirt dresses and men would dress in suits to show off their wealth. Big dances and dinner parties were the norm during this time. If you need help imagining this time period, please Google the South's antebellum period and you will find many pictures of this type of era. But also keep in mind that this luxurious lifestyle was all thanks to slave labor that the wealthy used to their advantage. One of the struggles for Savannah was dealing with multiple yellow fever outbreaks. The warm southern climate was perfect for mosquitoes, which caused the disease to spread quickly and then linger until the colder months. There were three notable epidemics during the 1800s. The first was in 1820 when close to 700 people died from the disease. Another outbreak occurred in 1784 when over 1,000 people died from yellow fever, and the deadliest outbreak happened in 1776 when the city's population was 28,000. It started on August 11th and spread rapidly from the city's port, causing more than 1,000 people to die. Another thing to keep in mind is that people in this era only counted the white people. So most of the things I was looking up said like 700 white people died. So who knows how many poor slaves died of the 
yellow fever epidemic that were never counted. Even though there was the fear of yellow fever epidemics popping up, the antebellum period was still going strong. This antebellum lifestyle did not last forever though because the Civil War would change everything. During the mid-1800s, the northern states changed from being an agricultural economy to an industrial economy. Most people in the north lived in large tenement buildings and worked in massive factories. Slave labor was no longer required. And at the same time, most northerners started to view slavery as evil and thought it should become illegal. This was due to a strong abolitionist movement that was sweeping throughout the north. A few well-known voices of the abolitionist movement were Frederick Douglass, John Brown, Harriet Tubman, and Harriet Beecher Stowe. The south in the mid-1800s was made up of rural communities. The southern states continued to rely heavily on slave labor and they were determined to keep their way of life. During this time, they were worried that they would lose it all. Many plantation owners felt that the federal government would take action to free all the slaves in their states. Since the time of the American independence from England, the southern states were in favor of states' rights over the power of the federal government. When Kansas entered the Union as a free state due to popular vote in 1861, the South saw this as a defining moment that the anti-slavery movement was stronger now than ever before. The final straw for the South was when Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States. He was a member of the new anti-slavery Republican Party. He wasn't even on the ballot in 10 of the southern states. 11 southern states decided to secede from the Union, starting with South Carolina. They formed a new country called the Confederate States of America. They elected Jefferson Davis as their president. President Lincoln said that the act of secession was illegal and sent trips to the South to force them to rejoin the Union. The American Civil War began on April 12, 1861, when the South attacked Fort Sumter in South Carolina. The South had little industry, which meant they did not have the capability to produce weapons to supply their armies. But they did have a strong cotton trade established with Great Britain and other foreign countries. One of the strategies by the Union to defeat the Confederacy was to put up a blockade around the South to keep them from getting any goods and weapons from any foreign countries that might be helping them. The Union called it the Anaconda Plan because the idea was they wanted to constrict the South and force them to surrender quickly. The blockades began just a few days after the Civil War started and lasted until it ended in 1865. Before the war, the South had a strong cotton trade with Great Britain and other countries. The South thought that Great Britain would come to their rescue, but it turned out that they had quite a stockpile of cotton in their warehouses and decided not to interfere. Great Britain had already abolished slavery in 1833 and did not want to get involved in the United States War. Shortly after this, the economy in the South began to fall apart. Fort Polinsky was captured by the Union Army in 1862. This fort was located at the mouth of the Savannah River. The Confederate troops retreated to Fort Jackson up the river about three miles from the city. The port cities such as Savannah suffered the most. There were food shortages for civilians and Confederate soldiers. The Confederate Army was poorly supplied with weapons and ammunition. A turning point for the Union Army was when General Sherman defeated General John Hood at the Battle of Atlanta on July 22, 1864. He gained full control of the city by September 2nd. After taking control of Atlanta, Sherman decided to take his troops across Georgia to Savannah so the Union Army could take control of the Savannah seaport. As they marched across Georgia, his men destroyed lumber mills and cotton gins. They burned and looted much of the towns and farms that they came across. They tore up miles and miles of railroad track and pretty much left nothing but ash in their wake. This is now known as Sherman's famous March to the Sea. And if you follow American politics, you'll know that this was a really bad idea and we're still dealing with 
the repercussions of it to this day. By the time Sherman and his troops arrived in Savannah in December, the Confederate troops at stationed at Fort Jackson had evacuated. The mayor surrendered without much of a fight. Sherman did not destroy the city, and instead he wrote a letter to President Lincoln offering Savannah as a Christmas present, along with 25,000 bales of cotton he found there. Sherman continued his march into the South Carolina, continuing to burn and destroy as he went until he reached Charleston. The Confederacy surrendered in April 1865. After the Civil War, the South had what we today call the Reconstruction Period. Newly free slaves worked hard to rebuild Savannah. They built their own churches and schools in spite of a poor economy, food shortages, and prejudice. Savannah became a significant African-American city in the United States. Cotton made a strong comeback. In fact, in 1887, Savannah ranked first as a cotton seaport in the Atlantic coast and second in the entire world. The Savannah Stock Exchange Building was built and many of the world's cotton prices were decided here. Savannah also added new industries by exporting resin and lumber. Between 1918 and 1928, the price of cotton began to drop because of overproduction, foreign competition, and the invention of new synthetic fabrics. The price bottomed out in 1931. Also during this time, the cotton crop was being ruined by the bull weevil, and there was a three-year drought start that started in 1925. If you don't know what a bull weevil is, they're basically like a beetle that'll eat nothing but the blossoms and the flowers on the cotton. And then if it eats that, it'll kill your entire crop. So it's a devastating thing to have on your crops if that's what you're trying to produce. Many sharecroppers and others struggling to keep their farms going abandoned them and became part of what is now called the Great Migration to the northern states to find jobs in city factories. Savannah, along with the rest of the United States, suffered during the Great Depression, which started with the stock market crash in October 1929 and worsened due to the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. The Great Depression continued until the start of World War II. During the war, the Southeastern Shipbuilding Corporation contracted with the United States government to build Liberty ships on the Savannah River just east of the city of Savannah. This employed 15,000 people and they built 88 ships. After the war, Savannah began to prosper once again. Unfortunately, during the 1930s and 40s, historical buildings were beginning to be torn down. And in the 1950s, a group of women worked to preserve many of the remaining buildings buildings. They started the Historic Savannah Foundation, which helped Savannah's historic district be designated as a National Historic Landmark in 1966. Thanks to these women, 22 of Oglethorpe's Park Squares remain, as well as some of the cobblestone streets. One of the most important buildings that was saved and restored is the oldest structure in Georgia, the Pirate's House, which was built in 1734, and it is also mentioned in the book Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. I also covered the Pirate's House in episode 5 when I was still under the old name History and Mystery. Tourism is important industry today in Savannah. According to savannah.com, in the last 10 years, more than 50 million people have come to visit Savannah, drawn by the elegant agriculture, ornate ironwork, fountains, and green squares. And yes, those are all great reasons to visit the city. But let's face it, this city is also famous for another reason being one of the most haunted cities in America. And boy, do they claim it. Almost everything you look into, if you want to like, let's say, stay at a place or eat at a restaurant, they almost all of them show or try to prove that that location is haunted. And that's one of the reasons that you should go check it out. It is really cool. The city also has a bunch of haunted tours to take. So now we're going to discuss why some of these buildings and areas around Savannah might actually be haunted. 
Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick time out and ask you a question. Did you know that one in 10 people have dyslexia? You might even have it and not know it. Dyslexia is a learning disability that affects reading, spelling, and sometimes math, but it has nothing to do with low intelligence. I know because Einstein himself had it. Oh, and I have it too. Many people go undiagnosed, but it is important that you know the signs so that you can get help right away. The faster you know your child has it, the faster you can start doing things differently so that they can start thriving in school. And if you're an adult who also might have it, remember, you are never too old to ask for help. Please go to dyslexia.org to find out more or my website, historicallyhaunted.net, and click on the information about dyslexia tab. Okay, back to the show. While the city of Savannah is said to be the most beautiful city in all of the United States, it is also said to be the most haunted city in America. Normally, I would scoff at such claims, but there will be no scoffing here because there is actually so much historical reasoning for that to be true, starting with the fact that Savannah is literally built on its own graves. Wherever you go inside of the city, there is a good chance, like a 97% chance, that there are bones beneath your feet. When Oglethorpe arrived, the site that they picked to build the city on was an Indian burial ground and was said to be sacred to the Yamaka Indians, but Oglethorpe decided to build there anyway. From the research I did, it is unclear to know if Oglethorpe already knew there was an ancient burial ground there and decided to build on it anyway like he didn't care or he didn't know, or some even go so far as to say that the Indians let him build on that property because they knew that it would be cursed. If you do paranormal research, then you know that building on or messing with an ancient Indian burial ground is a big no-no in the paranormal community. But the fact that the town was built on one anyway makes some people believe that this land is actually cursed. While the town tries to showcase its beauty, it's hard to ignore the terrible things that have happened here, such as devastating famine, war, fires, and hurricanes that have killed thousands of people. Yellow fever epidemics tore through the area and wiped out huge chunks of Savannah's population. So many people died that they had to bury the dead in open pits and unmarked graves instead of individual grave sites. Graveyards soon became overrun and slave grave sites became forgotten and built upon as the city pushed outwards from its original grid pattern. Just last year, on Halloween of all days, a construction company unearthed some forgotten graves that were later identified as a colonial cemetery from a former forgotten plantation site. This is just one of the many reasons that I think there could be something going on in this area. On top of all of that, the town has so many ghost stories that there is no way I could possibly cover them all in one episode, but I'm going to do my best to talk about as many as I can. So while we're talking about dead underneath your feet, what better place to start than the Colonial Park Cemetery? Colonial Park Cemetery is one of Savannah's oldest cemeteries. The cemetery covers six acres and is located in the center of Savannah's historic district. It was established in 1750 and was used for just over 100 years until they stopped burying people there in 1853. The cemetery has 
has over 9,000 graves, including some of Savannah's first settlers. The cemetery is also the site of a mass grave that held 700 victims from the yellow fever epidemic of 1820. There is a local legend that the actual number of victims was 666, but the city did not want that number in the record books, so they rounded it up to 700. But we will never know whether that's true or not. Union soldiers that came to the city during Sherman's march to the sea allegedly broke and moved tombstones from their proper grave sites. The cemetery has experienced much vandalism over the years, and that might explain why so many spirits are not at rest. The graveyard has many historical figures buried here, but the thing that made this cemetery the most famous while it was in operation was the use of it as a dueling ground. It was common in the 1700s for men to settle their differences by challenging each other to a duel. The most famous duel to happen in Colonial Park Cemetery was between Button Gwennett and Lachlan McIntosh. Gwennett was born in England in 1735, and he came to Charleston, South Carolina in the early 1760s. He moved to Savannah to boost his trading and farming business. He became involved in politics and was elected to the House of Commerce of Assembly. He was also a leader of the Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War. McIntosh was born in Scotland in 1725, and his family came to Georgia in 1736. McIntosh was also involved in politics, but he was on the opposing side of Gwinnett. McIntosh went on to fight against the British with George Washington and became a war hero. Throughout the war, Gwinnett and McIntosh remained political rivals. All their hatred toward each other finally came to a head when Gwinnett ordered McIntosh to attack the British-held Florida during the Revolutionary War in April 1777. The attack failed, and McIntosh publicly blamed Gwinnett when he returned to Savannah. Gwinnett demanded an apology from McIntosh, but he refused. So when Gwinnett sent a letter to McIntosh challenging him to a duel on May 16, 1777, they met in the cemetery. They stood 12 paces apart and fired at the same time. Both men were shot in the leg. McIntosh's wound healed, but Gwinnett's wound became infected and he died three days later. Gwinnett's political party charged McIntosh with murder, but he was found not guilty. George Washington reinstated him with the main army and he endured the terrible winter of 1778-87 to at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. McIntosh died in 1806 and was also buried in this cemetery. It seems as though these two men still duel in the afterlife. For it is said that if you go to the cemetery when the fog and the moon is just right, you can see the two men firing their pistols at each other before vanishing into the mist. Other ghosts are said to linger among the tombstones as well. Many ghosts have been seen in colonial dress wandering the many pathways throughout the cemetery. Many ghosts of Revolutionary War soldiers have also been seen. Another prominent cemetery in Savannah is Bonaventure Cemetery. The land was originally owned by Colonel John Mulrine and his wife Claudia beginning in 1762. They eventually owned a total of 600 acres, three and a half miles from the Savannah colony. No agricultural crops were grown here, but the Colonel loved live oak trees and he planted one about every 15 feet on each side of the roads on his estate. The first plantation house burned in 1771. A brick mansion was built in its place. The Mulrines were British loyalists and lost the land during the Revolutionary War. Ownership changed hands several times until the city purchased some of the land to become a public cemetery in 1907. It is considered one of the most beautiful cemeteries in the world due to it being located on the bluff overlooking the Wilmington River, and it is designed based on the traditional Victorian style with curving pathways and lots of open spaces covered with grass and trees. A common pastime during the Victorian era was for families to have picnics 
picnics on the grounds. Many prominent people are buried here in Bonaventure. Governors, war heroes, members of prominent families. There's an interesting saying in Savannah that says being buried at Bonaventure was considered almost as good as being alive. Thousands of people visit each year. They hold tours and they even do weddings. Did I just say weddings? Yes, you heard that right. They are famous for holding weddings inside the graveyard. Personally, I think it's a little strange, but if that's your thing, then you do you. I guess that's for people that are really into that Victorian macabre style. Just keep in mind that if you are going to visit this cemetery and take a tour or even get married in it, you might want to keep an eye and an ear out because there won't just be tourists around you or just wedding guests because this cemetery is extremely haunted. There have been many strange stories about the spot where the original house burnt down. Apparently, you can see ghosts having a party at night. The reason for this is because there was a party being held inside the home at the time the fire broke out, and the colonel did not panic. He instead ordered everything to be moved out to the front lawn, and he and his guests continued the dinner party as the house burnt to the ground. The host threw a crystal wine goblet onto one of the oak trees as a sign of celebration, and his guests followed suit, and soon they began singing, laughing, and dancing around the burning mansion. This old southern story is also one of Savannah's oldest ghost stories. Passengers on river ships have reported seeing strange lights and mists as they pass by the graveyard. Some have even claimed to see ghosts wandering among the tombstones, and some say if you pass by the cemetery on a cool autumn night when the moon and the fog is just right, you will hear music, laughter, and the sound of smashing crystal goblets. Savannah wouldn't be where it is today without its seaport, shipping out goods like cotton and rice and, sadly, shipping in slaves. The main hub of activity was River Street. Most of the buildings there today were once used as warehouses to hold cotton that were waiting to go on many ships. Working on the docks was super dangerous. Many accidents were reported and workers were mostly made up of German, Irish, and African-American men. Men were killed by the hundreds working in the extreme conditions. This is why it might be no surprise that this place is reportedly haunted. It's one of the most paranormally active places in the city, and it is not uncommon for people to see men walking up and down River Street dressed in period clothing. The sight of men working silently on the docks before disappearing into thin air has been reported, almost as if the person was looking into a window of time. The warehouses were not only used to hold cotton and cargo, but they were also used to hold slaves. For just under a hundred years, African-American men, women, and children were viciously taken from their homelands and forced onto ships that brought them to America. And it was not a leisure boat ride over either. They were chained in the bottom of the ship, and they had to stay in the dark, cramped, smelly hull of the ship the entire way over. Once they arrived in Savannah, they were chained inside these warehouses on the docks, and they were then auctioned off to wealthy plantation owners. The condition on the ships were so bad that the crew waited until nighttime to unload the slaves to hide how bad it really was on board. It is such a tragic part of the United States history, and it makes my skin crawl, and I hate talking about it. It also makes me really angry and sad that this was even ever a thing. Today, you can still see the chains and rings for shackles on the walls of the old warehouses. There are reports of people feeling anger and sorrow when they're in the area. 
People who have stayed at the Old Harbor Inn have reported hearing the sound of rattling chains and moaning. In the alleyways around River Street, many people have reported hearing the sound of footsteps behind them and seeing shadow figures darting between the buildings. Fort Jackson is reportedly haunted by many Confederate soldiers. There are stories from guests of strange happenings at the old fort. Today it is a museum that holds many historical events. The fort is the oldest standing brick fort in all of Georgia and it is over 200 years old. Many people have reported seeing ghosts dressed in Confederate uniforms walking around the fort. Most people mistake them as workers that are dressed in period outfits, but then they vanish before their eyes. Many people report feeling uneasy and a sense of being watched as they walk around the fort. Seeing ghosts up on on the walls of the old fort has also been reported as if they are looking down at you. Disembodied voices and footsteps through the halls has also a common occurrence. The most famous ghost story at Fort Jackson is that of Private Garrity. I could not find out if this story was actually true or not, but it makes for a really good ghost story, so I'm just going to tell it to you anyways. The story goes like this. Private Garrity was angry at his lieutenant, Lieutenant Dickerson, because of Dickerson's anti-Catholic views. Tensions finally bubbled over when Garrity snapped and attacked the lieutenant after he just had crossed over a drawbridge coming back to the fort for the night. Garrity beat him repeatedly over the head with his musket until the musket broke in two. After the people in the fort started to see what was happening, they came running to the lieutenant's aid. Garrity ran for it and he jumped into the moat under the fort and drowned. Dickerson recovered but suffered so much brain damage that he could not continue to work for the Confederacy. Ever since this incident, people have reported seeing a Confederate soldier pacing back and forth on the drawbridge. People also claim to see a Confederate soldier just hanging out around the area that allegedly the lieutenant was attacked. Many people think this ghost is Private Garrity who is still angry that he did not finish off the lieutenant when he had the chance. There's a hotel in Savannah where you can stay the night with a few ghosts if you're brave enough. The Marshall House is a famous hotel in Georgia that is over 100 years old. Opened in 1851 by successful businesswoman Mary M. Marshall, Mary saw the current railroad boom as a perfect opportunity to open a new hotel to accommodate the large number of people flocking into the city. During its 100 plus years of history, the hotel has been used for a variety of things. It was used as a hospital during the yellow fever epidemics of the mid-1800s. It was used as a Union hospital during the Civil War, and it closed in 1957, but the ground floor was used for a variety of shops until 1998. From 1998 to 1999, it was restored back to its original state. It is now a hotel once again, and in fact, it is the oldest hotel in Savannah. On the second and third floors, they have display cases with artifacts from the Civil War that they found during the renovations. But small bottles and old news clippings is not all that was found during the renovation. In the basement of the hotel, they found human bones buried underneath the dirt. It was determined that the bones were from when the hotel was being used as a Civil War hospital and the basement was used as one of the surgery rooms. During the Civil War, they did not have a way to stop the spread of infection, so if a soldier got hit in the leg or the arm by a bullet, the only thing that could be done at the time was to cut off the limb of the soldier. This was done without any anesthetic, so soldiers were almost always awake during the surgery. And during this time, the doctors didn't even know what caused an infection. They had no idea what was causing all the 
the gangrene. So they would never clean their tools in between. They'd literally saw off someone's arm or leg, wipe it off on a cloth, throw that guy back outside, and then call in the next soldier that needed something amputated and use the same tool on that guy. Yes, it's disgusting. And you can imagine how many people didn't even make it. So they got their arms sawed off and then they die a couple days later due to infection again. The pain and anguish that these soldiers had to endure while being in these hospitals. Back then, the hospital was not a place you wanted to be. It was pretty much like going to a death house. It was like you probably knew you weren't going to make it out of there after you got sent off the battlefield to a hospital. To top it all off, most of these doctors were drunk or they were so amped out on, I don't know, opium sometimes they used to stay awake to do so many surgeries because they had men coming day and night and they almost could not stop doing their surgical procedures. Also, a lot of the doctors weren't even really doctors. They got so overrun with this war that they didn't know how to handle it. And they called up a lot of people who were just starting their medical careers from colleges. So a lot of people didn't even know what they were doing. So this was not a happy place when this was being used as a union hospital at all. This hospital was being so overrun with sawed off limbs that the doctors ended up just burying the limbs under the dirt in the basement. And I feel so bad for the construction workers. Could you imagine just doing your job, minding your own business, and then all of a sudden unearthing a bunch of bones? I'd be freaking out. <laughs> After hearing what this hotel was used for, it might come no surprise that this hotel has made it onto the top 10 most haunted hotels list many different times. And this hotel has quite a range of ghost stories. The list of strange occurrences is quite extensive, from toilets overflowing for no apparent reason, lights flickering on and off on their own, to faucets turning on and off, electronics turning on when they aren't even plugged in, just some of the things that have been reported by guests. Disembodied voices have been reported on all floors. Hearing footsteps in the hall and doorknobs jiggling as if someone is trying to enter the room are common occurrences. There is reportedly a loud noise that happens in the early morning hours on the fourth floor. Apparently it sounds like something large is falling in the hallway and then when people go out to investigate, there's nothing there. The ghosts of children have been seen and heard many times throughout the hotel. They have been spotted skipping and playing games in the hallways. The sound of running feet, laughter, and rolling of a rubber ball and marbles have also been heard by guests at night. When the guests open the door to their rooms to see what is going on, there is no one there. The sound of crying babies has also been reported. Most of the kid ghosts seem to be harmless, but there has been a really interesting and, dare I say, disturbing report of a child spirit that likes to bite. This is a really interesting story. So, a mother and son were staying at the Marshall house, and the boy was in the bathroom when he came running out crying. When the mother asked him what was wrong, he reportedly said, that boy bit me. When the mother asked what boy, her son said the one I was playing with in the bathroom. His mother looked around and found no boy, but there was a child-sized bite mark on him. And this is not the only case of a child-sized bite mark to appear on someone. Adults have even woken up from their stay to having a child-sized bite mark on their body in a place where there's no way they could reach. And I don't know how I feel about that one, to be honest. If that's true, that's just creepy. Plenty of spirits of Union soldiers from the Civil War period have been seen all over the hotel. Many guests have seen soldiers that have amputated limbs wandering around the hotel with a blank look on their face. There's a really sad story of an apparition of a soldier who was holding his own amputated arm, pleading with guests in the lobby to help him find a surgeon before he vanished into thin air. The staff and guests alike have said that a foul-smelling odor described as rotting flesh pops up in random rooms. The worst of this smell is in rooms 214, 314, and 414. 
They had a priest come and bless all the rooms to try to get the smell out, and it worked on all the rooms except for 414. 414 still has the smell from time to time, and it also has a bad vibe, and staff apparently play gospel music while they clean it, and they won't go in there alone. Some people think that a ghost of a nurse still haunts the hotel. Many people think this because they have reported feeling as if someone is holding their wrist to try to take their pulse. A room once used for an operating room during the war seems to have a window to the past. People have walked into this space and seen doctors treating soldiers before it all goes back to normal. So if you want to go to Savannah for a visit and you really want to see a ghost, stay at the Marshall House because you just might get that paranormal experience you've been looking for. Another ghostly stop would be the Juliet Gordon Lowell House. Juliet, nicknamed Daisy by her uncle, was the founder of the Girl Scouts. She was born on October 31st, 1860. During the Civil War, her father fought for the Confederacy, while her mother's family from Illinois fought for the Union. Daisy suffered with almost complete hearing loss due to ear infections in childhood and adulthood. Daisy married William Lowell, the son of a wealthy cotton businessman, in 1886. They owned homes in England and Georgia. After her husband's death, in 1905, Daisy traveled around the world searching for a purpose. While in London in 1911, she met the founder of the Boy Scouts, Robert Powell. He suggested that Daisy go work with the Girl Guide troops in London and rural Scotland. After this, she sailed home in 1912 and Daisy decided to bring the Girl Guiding to the United States. Her first meeting was held at her cousin's school in Savannah on March 12, 1912. She did not discriminate and included girls from all classes, cultures, ethnicities, and those with disabilities. Daisy passed away on January 17, 1927, and is buried in Savannah's Laurel Grove Cemetery, wearing her Girl Scout uniform. President Barack Obama awarded her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2012. Her birthplace has been preserved and now can be toured. There are also special Girl Scout troop experiences throughout the year. The Juliet Gordon Lowell House is home to one of Savannah's most treasured love stories. Daisy's parents, William and Nellie, were together for 50 years until William died in 1912. After his death, Nellie talked continuously of the time that they would be together again, and it seems that William did in fact come for her. For when Nellie was on her deathbed five years later, Nellie sat up and stretched out her arms as if to embrace someone that the family couldn't see. Then she took her last breath. Meanwhile, her daughter-in-law was sitting just outside of the room, and she swears she saw William come out of Nellie's bedroom. Moments later, the family's butler came upstairs and told Daisy that her mother had walked out of the house arm-in-arm arm with her father. Today, people have claimed to hear the sound of soft footsteps throughout the home. Some people think it's William and Nellie coming back to visit their beloved home. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode of Historically Haunted. I hope you guys had fun. Thank you all so much for sticking with me, especially during this crazy time in our history. I know I mentioned a Q&A video a couple, like a week ago, but time just got away from me. 
and I totally forgot to tell you guys, but I'm waiting to get a new camera. That's why I haven't done it yet. So I have a new camera shipping to my house and with the way shipment is going right now, it's kind of late, but I'm waiting for that new camera to come so I can take you guys to a nice outdoor area and then I can do a fun Q&A with you guys. So if you wanted to ask me a question, and of course, please keep the questions respectful, of course, but if you wanted to ask me a question about my show or just me in general, uh, go ahead. You can email me at historicallyhaunted.3 at gmail.com and you can also send any personal paranormal listener stories to that email as well. I would love to do another um, personal paranormal story uh, episode so please keep those coming. I especially want to do one for the Halloween season so if you or someone very close to you has a true paranormal story and wouldn't mind me sharing it on my show you can go ahead and send that to my email again that is historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. So thank you guys so much. Make sure to add me on Facebook Twitter and Instagram to keep up. I also have a group page that is starting to take off. So thank you guys for being the best listeners ever and I will see you guys next time on Historically Haunted. Stay safe everybody. Bye!